son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's update you now on a story that it's pretty hard for anybody to forget about. It's the one where a man drove a rented van down a Toronto sidewalk, killing 10 people and injuring 16 others. The person arrested for that is pleading not guilty on the grounds that he is not criminally responsible for his actions. Now, that trial is ongoing. Court has heard almost a week of testimony at this point from psychiatrists on both sides. So we thought, let's get an update on what's going on. So joining us now is Global News AM640 reporter Dave Woodward. Dave, thanks very much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. How has this been going? What are the arguments in court right now? So there's been uh, really the defense's argument, which is that uh, he should be found not criminally responsible, as you said. Uh, And the key witness for the defense is a Yale psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Alexander Westfall. Now, Westfall says um, that Alec Manassian lacks empathy and doesn't understand the moral wrongfulness of killing 10 people. Uh, But he wouldn't even say that he should be found not criminally responsible. In fact, he said uh, that is a legal matter rather than a uh, psychiatric one. Uh, The other thing that that Westfall has been saying is that he lacked something called a theory of mind or the ability to take perspective of other people and to understand that others can have different thoughts and feelings than their own. And he says that really led to uh, the fact that, you know, he didn't know what he did uh, was wrong. Now, the defense did rest their case after Westfall was on the stand for more than seven days. Um, And so the Crown has just begun uh, its case. Uh, A forensic psychologist by the name of uh, Dr. Percy Wright took the stand yesterday and said that uh, not only does he have um, you know, theory of mind in order to uh, commit something like this. Mm-hmm. He knew what was what he did was wrong. What do we know about Alex Manassian at this point? So Alec Manassian, he's a 28-year-old. Um, he is autistic, uh, which is what the defense is saying. You know, his autistic way of thinking um, is what led to this, and that's why he should be found not criminally responsible. Um, he went uh, to Seneca College in Toronto. Uh, he graduated with a 3.7 uh, grade point average. Uh, all in all, despite you know having autism, he seems to you know be a, a normal twenty-eight-year-old uh, man. Um, other than you know the fact that he's you know admitted to killing ten people and running them down on on a North York street. Now, I had read the part about the autism kind of factoring into part of the defense's arguments. Now, Dave, that can't have gone over very well with families who have autistic children or people just dealing with autism on a daily basis. 
It absolutely has. And, you know, groups, uh, advocacy groups for autism, kind of, you know, as soon as they heard that was the defense, uh, they were up in arms. They were on, you know, Global News Radio 640 Toronto uh, pretty regularly the first few days of the trial. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a, and Dr. Westfall went to very, um, uh, he went through lengths to, to say that, you know, not all autistic people are violent. In fact, they are mostly, um, you know, the victims of violence. And this case is not as cut and dried as because he's autistic, he was violent. Uh, so there's been a lot of nuance in terms of the psychological expressions, what's, what's being kind of put yeah. out there. What's it been like for the families of the victims? Have they been in court and what have they been saying? Uh, they haven't been in court and it's actually an interesting, you know, court situation, as you might imagine, with COVID, there's nobody, there is no courtroom. Uh, it's all done over uh, Zoom. Right. Uh, the Justice Anne Malloy, she's in her office. The The Crown prosecutors are in their sp uh, uh, offices. Uh, Boris Potensky, who's representing the defense, is in his office. Uh, and we're all kind of watching this on Zoom. Uh, now, we have heard f before the case started from some family members and some survivors uh, who said, you know, they want to uh, keep on uh, seeing what's going on, and, and they are able to. They, they, everybody um, within the, the context of the, uh, the trial is able to get a log on to this trial, and they're able to see everything, but you're not able to see the reactions. You're not able to hear what they have to say. You don't hear any audible gasps that you normally would from a right. courtroom. So what happens now then, Dave? How is the next little while going to go? Uh, so again, the, the crown has started its uh, case. Um, it's going to, you know, basically uh, bring on witnesses who are going to specifically refute the testimony of uh, Alexander Westfall, uh, the psychologist that was called up yesterday. Uh, he will be back on the stand this afternoon. Um, he's going to be. Um, cross-examined by the defense. Uh, and then there's going to be at least one more um, forensic psychiatrist called by the Crown. Now, we are expecting this to go until about the 18th of December, um, which would make it a very lengthy court case. Um, but we have delays as well. Uh, a couple of uh, a couple of days ago, there was a three-day delay uh, due to you know video not being made available to the crown. Uh, there is a delay this morning so that the defense can kind of get on the same page uh, with other psychiatrists that that have right. um, administered tests. So it, it, we're hoping to have the the court case done by December eighteenth, and, and specifically, hopefully, by the end of this year. All right. We'll see what happens. Dave, thank you for your time. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate that. Dave Woodard is a global news reporter in Toronto at AM640, updating us on the Alec Manassian trial. Uh, he has pled not guilty on the grounds of being not criminally responsible for his actions, so it has certainly made for some contentious moments during the trial, as Dave pointed out there. Well, let's talk about our perception of political power. There's a new study from UBC that suggests people with a lower socioeconomic status are more likely to have a negative view of people who make the policies and how they actually got to their positions of obtaining political power. We were curious, right? Want to learn more about that. So our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to researcher Leanne Tenbrink, uh, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at UBC Okanagan. 
I love social psychology because I think it's just so interesting to take a step back and to think about why we do the things that we do. You know, those things that we don't even realize that we do or the beliefs that we don't even know that we have. And Leanne, your latest research, it takes a look at exactly that. What does your latest research tell us about how we perceive power? Uh, So there is uh, quite a a large body of research on how people gain power or influence in a group. And it turns out there's a couple of routes that one can use to gain power. And one is via coercion. So things like dominating or threatening and manipulating people into, um, you know, climbing to the top. The other is rooted in collaboration. So people gain respect from others for some special skill they have or for pursuing the greater good. Um, So both of these are valuable and, you know, possible routes to gaining power, but it wasn't clear how people thought about these strategies. So when you ask people to think about how power works, do they see powerful people as these more coercive types or as benevolent kind of social coordinators? And what might lead people to have one perspective on power versus the other? So that's what we were studying uh, in this paper by creating a measure of what we call people's theories of power. That is uh, the way they think about how power works. Uh, We're also really interested in how one's socioeconomic status uh, might affect their view of powerful people and the trust that they put in others. So what we found is that people tended to hold one theory of power or the other. So they either thought of power as something that you achieve by coercing others or by collaborating with others. And they tended not to hold both of these theories simultaneously, even though research suggests that both strategies can um, be viable avenues to power. We also found that there were some characteristics that predicted whether you held one theory of power over the other. So we found that uh, lower SES individuals tended to hold more coercive beliefs about power and fewer collaborative beliefs. So lower SES people thought that you needed to be coercive to gain power. In contrast, higher SES uh, folks held more collaborative beliefs, which suggests they might have kind of a self-serving or positive view about how they gain their own social status, which isn't shared by uh, lower SES individuals. Okay, so people who have lower socioeconomic status or SES tend to think that power is something that you take by being coercive, by using force, whereas people who are higher on the socioeconomic scale, so those who have higher SES, tend to have a more positive view about how power is gained. Typically, these are going to be people who have more resources, so may likely experience more power anyways, and they see the attainment of power as being something that is more collaborative, correct? Yes, exactly. So we also found that people who endorse those more coercive beliefs tended to be less trusting of others, which, you know, probably makes sense. While people who held these more collaborative beliefs tended to be more trusting of others. Um, So it suggests that, you know, there's this link between how we think about how powerful people achieve their kind of social station and uh, the extent to which we're perhaps willing to put our trust in them. How is it that you first came to research this topic? I think it's really, really interesting, but what inspired you to look at this in a more in-depth way? 
so this study, it's, it's been a long time in the, in the pipeline. It was really inspired by the 2016 election in the United States. Um, I was living there at the time in Berkeley, California, um, and I was struck by the really different approaches to power offered by the then candidates, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. More than that, it was really fascinating to see some people who thought that this kind of blustering dominance was an appropriate path to power, while others thought it was completely inappropriate and unpresidential. So this research really sought to just like define those perceptions about how power works and be able to measure them um, and show that people have different views about how power is um, gained and maintained. And did you find anything that explains how people's perceptions of power impact their actions? Yeah, so that um, I think is something that we're going to need to pursue in future research. There's certainly lots of hypotheses that we could make, you know, that um, if you are a, a relatively low SES individual who holds these coercive beliefs, you might not be very surprised when there's some sort of scandal in the news about a high-level politician uh, doing something unethical, right? Whereas if you are higher SES and you think of powerful people as these more uh, moral paragons, that might be more surprising to you and perhaps a, a good reason in your mind to remove them from that uh, position of power. But we did not examine that stuff directly, except for thinking about how um, theories of power related to trust. And I wonder if this could even help explain why some individuals feel more motivated to vote than others. If you're in this low socioeconomic status group who thinks that power is just taken by a politician being coercive, then I imagine that you'd probably be less inspired to get out there and vote. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's lots of research on this kind of disparity in participation in the democratic process and how that varies by SES. And there's obviously many um, structural reasons as well why uh, low SES individuals might be less able to make it to the polls, you know, not able to get the time off work, for example, or not able to travel to the polls for some reason. But this research might suggest that there's uh, another reason which indicates that, you know, if you don't trust any of these, you know, high power politicians, perhaps it doesn't matter to you so much who's in office. Um, if you think that these individuals are, you know, dominant and coercive, and you can't trust them no matter who wins the election. We have a little bit of data to suggest that people who hold those more coercive theories of power are less likely to turn out to the polls. But that's going to be a focus of future research. Well, they're already kind of flying off the shelves. Good luck trying to get one if you wanted a specialty turkey for this holiday season. You might, I've, I just ordered mine from my butcher shop yesterday. So you do have to do some looking around, though, if that's what you're looking for. And we wanted to ask, well, is this going to be the case now? Do we need to worry about our Christmas turkeys? So joining us now is the general manager of the BC Turkey Farmers Association, Michelle Benoit. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It sounds like uh, turkey farmers are having a pretty busy time right now. It has been a very complicated and challenging uh, year, just like uh, most other agricultural producers out there, trying to figure out uh, COVID, COVID rules, uh, COVID uh, 
issues and and the fact that you need to plan turkeys over five months in advance in order to get them in the store at the right time, the right size. So it has been nothing but a challenging year for everyone involved. No kidding. So if you if put it that way, then here comes Christmas where people are going to have smaller gatherings, so probably smaller turkeys. But you're talking about things that were planned five or six months ago. That's correct. And um, uh, we didn't know what the uh, what the situations would be like. We did we did do a, a cut in our production uh, when the COVID first hit, and uh, and we were you know we had fingers crossed for Thanksgiving. Uh, but uh, we found out uh, real soon after Thanksgiving that the uh, demand for this year was actually higher than it had been for the last oh, few boy. years, and then uh, and then the demand for smaller turkeys was incredibly high. Our drawdown in inventory was uh, much higher than we expected on the smaller sizes. So it does mean the good news is that that most of the Christmas turkeys have not yet arrived in the stores. They'll start arriving this week and they'll receiving shipments all the way through to Christmas. Uh, but if you're looking for a certain size, if you're really looking for a smaller turkey, I would advise to uh, to go early, be an early bird. Uh, if you're looking for the smaller sizes, we will still have leftover turkey. There will be turkeys, uh, you know, millions of kilos of turkeys will be left over this Christmas, like most other Christmases. Odds are they'll probably be in the 20-pound range, not not in the 10-pound uh, or less range. Oof. Okay, so essentially get used to eating leftovers. Uh, or, that's, that's great. Right? I have no problem with that. I have no problem. But, or shop early then, you're saying? Yes, shop early. Uh, the fresh uh, the fresh products will be uh, start arriving now. And, uh, and because of the drawdown on the smaller turkeys from Thanksgiving, uh, it is possible that uh, that if you try to go looking on the 23rd or the 24th of December, you will have a 20-pound turkey if you're still interested. Now, on the other hand, there's also a great roast. There's bone-in, boneless uh, roast, frozen fresh. Uh, there's lots of other innovative products that uh, will be out there this Christmas. Uh, there's been a move towards, it's a trend now that we've been seeing. And so the industry is definitely gearing up for that. So that's uh, that's certainly another option for people as well. So Michelle, it sounds like despite the COVID challenges and all of that going on, that supply has, it's, it's probably actually been a good year in terms of sales for turkey farms. Good year for uh, retail sales, but a, uh, a devastating year uh, for everyone involved for the food service, uh, cruise ship industry, hotels, etc. Uh, we're still uh, we're still freezing uh, breast meat product, uh, so we're still in an oversupply on uh, on some items. This uh, the second round of uh, of shutdowns in the food service sector are are causing us to freeze breast meat uh, again, and. Uh, and yeah, we, we're we're trying to we're trying to figure this out and trying to make sure that we have the right amount of product. All right. Well, of course, I'm, I'll buy mine, and I know lots of other people will as well. So, Michelle, thank you. You're welcome. That is Michelle Benoit, General Manager with the BC Turkey Farmers Association. So you heard the man there. If you were hoping to snag a smaller turkey, like 10 pounds or so, because you're going to have a smaller gathering, shop early. Get Be on the lookout for it now. And if you can, get it now and put it in the freezer. Do what you can. He said there'll be lots of supply, but it'll be more in the 20-pounder range. And hey, there's nothing wrong with that. It just means you're going to be eating some leftovers for a while. That's all. Love turkey leftovers. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. 
Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It goes down. down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Right. You got 676 days until the next election and the next council could very well get some power. So, you know, what? we're putting a halt to this and we're going to invest in the RCMP and retain the RCMP. So that is Surrey City Councillor Jack Hundell. He was speaking with us on the show yesterday and it got us thinking about, is it possible that the Surrey police transition wouldn't be seen all the way through to fruition? Because it certainly seems like it's on that track. So when he said that, we started to wonder well, what's going on. And then we heard that the Surrey Board of Trade is also continuing to voice its opposition to this transition process as well. So is this thing a done deal or isn't it? So to talk more about this, we're joined now by the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, Anita Haberman. Anita, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Simi. Now, I know you had put out a press release or the board did yesterday on this particular topic. Where do you see the transition at right now? Well, right now, there are a lot of accountabilities and a lot of oversight that needs to be done by the B.C. government in terms of IT, in terms of human resources. Uh, You know, will service levels or public safety uh, be compromised? Both the Premier and uh, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth said this is not going to be an easy process. Uh, we are Canada's largest uh, police force, and there are a lot of things that still need to be approved uh, by the B.C. government as it relates to the Surrey police transition. And so do you see the possibility of it not going all the way through? It's not a done deal from our perspective. There is a possibility, absolutely, that uh, it could not be approved eventually by the B.C. government. Um, I know that the federal government, they have indicated that they will not be transferring uh, the RCMP IT infrastructure to the the new Surrey Police Service. Uh, so, uh, you know, right now, uh, we're, we're asking, and, and I have to say, public safety matters to business, mm-hmm. uh, and to the livability of a community. So what's going to happen to case files? Are businesses going to be safe? What about the public trust in this new police force? Uh, so there's a, a lot of questions, and so now what we're doing, and we sent letters to all of the BC MLAs last week saying you need to pay attention and be serious about your oversight as BC government officials on what is happening in Surrey, because it will affect all BC communities. Now, have you heard anything from Surrey City Hall about your concerns? No, uh, not really. I mean, uh, they're certainly aware of uh, what it is uh, that we're advocating for, that uh, first of all, we need to focus on economic recovery. We don't need a, to invest in a police transition uh, when we don't need it. Uh, let's harness our existing resources. Uh, but uh, certainly they don't agree with us. Um, 
And, uh, you know, that's how it is sometimes right. uh, between uh, a business organization and a political level. Right. But what are you hearing from businesses? Well, businesses are saying, you know, we want we want a, a, a city hall. We want government officials, even the B.C. government, to focus on things that will save business. And uh, a new police transition will not save business. Uh, you know, some are saying this new police transition is going to make Surrey a happy and healthy community. And uh, there's no evidence of that. Uh, there's no evidence that crime is going to decrease. Uh, crime has continued to decrease even without the new Surrey Police Service. And what did you think, though? Because, like, you know, from the perspective of people just following the news, I mean, it looks like it's full steam ahead. A new chief of police has even been hired. Well, uh, you know, they're certainly obligated to do that now. Uh, You know, the B.C. government has given them this step uh, to do that. But the Surrey Police Board now, accountable to the B.C. government, needs to ensure that public safety on the streets of Surrey for both residents and businesses are not compromised. And so now we have uh, two police forces. Uh, There's going to be confusion on the ground. Uh, Who are you going to trust? Uh, Where are tax dollars going to be spent? Uh, Who are you going to call if you have a break and enter? You know, um, we're talking next year, though, Anita, right? Like initially the schedule said that this was going to happen in 2021. It's not going to happen next year. We heard it's going to be in place by the end of 2022. And uh, But again, there's so many questions. And even the new chief constable of the Surrey Police Service said that he has to take a look at all of the legal documents. He has to see where we're at. How is he going to bring in uh, 800 new officers or even less than that than what is needed in order to serve our growing population in Surrey? All right. So it sounds like um, there's still quite a few questions about this. So what outlet do people have, do you think, Anita, at this point to say, I hear these concerns and I, I would like to also raise some concerns? Well, the only outlet right now, and that's why we went there, is to the BC MLAs and to the BC government. That's the premier and that's the solicitor general. And they have to take this seriously. And this is both sides of the government, both the NDP and both the Liberals. They need to understand that there's cost impacts to the BC budget and public safety impacts to all of British Columbia. All right, we'll see what happens. Anita, thanks for talking to us about it. Thank you. It's Anita Haberman, the Surrey Board of Trade CEO, talking about the police transition in Surrey. The reason why is that we, we spoke to Jack Hundell, Surrey City Councilor, yesterday about it too, and he also mentioned that this isn't a done deal. And all of a sudden we're starting to hear that this isn't a done deal, that perhaps the transition can't be fully completed until maybe right after the next election. Does that leave a window in there for people in the next election to say, we don't want this to go any further. It just seems to kind of complicate things there in Surrey. But I'd love to hear from residents on this. Uh, do you welcome that? Do you think, yes, let's raise these concerns. Yes, let's slow down this process. I'd like to have another shot at voting for this. You can email me, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. You know, one industry that I tell you has been really hard hit and is just kind of struggling to stay in business is the restaurant industry. And we know December is a really important time for restaurants. Think of all the corporate events and the bookings and the Christmas parties and the get-togethers and all of that that isn't happening 
On the other hand, there are people who want to go out for dinner. Maybe they don't want to do as much cooking these days. So we wanted to talk about how this is going to work and how restaurants are planning for the next few weeks. So joining us now is Ian Tossenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Hi, Ian. Hi, Simi. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. You know, we were curious about this because I thought, well, maybe some people are going to take their small gathering and go out for dinner over the Christmas season. Well, I was just looking at a website. It's called Food Gressing, and it has, I'm actually quite surprised how many restaurants are going to be open on the 24th and 25th of December. You know, like, you know, Forage and White Spot and the Boathouse and the Fairmont. So for those, um, there's a bit of a call out here because what you said at the beginning is so true is the industry right now has never been, I think, of the entire pandemic. This is the worst we've been into right now. So anybody is thinking about going out and um, and going with her clan for a meal and heading out don't want to cook and the turkey shortages and the things you talked about earlier yeah. on. Uh, would be greatly uh, uh, appreciated because it is really tough, and it's been tough since really the beginning of November when uh, you know Dr. Henry started to clamp down, and and so she has to, and so we will play our play our role in this. But it's really kept a lot of people at home. This is what I was thinking too. So I thought, well, why not try something different? So I'm going to do the turkey on Christmas Eve, but on Christmas Day we're going to go out for like a Christmas lunch, you know, at a at a nice restaurant. And, I, and I'm hoping that'll be something that a lot of people choose to do because it sounds to me like the restaurants could really use it. They could. And I would suggest if you're going to do that is make your reservations now. Oh, they're done. This so all good for you. <laughs> Where are you going? Uh, you know what? We're going to check out Boulevard. Boulevard, um, yeah. Boulevard, yeah. Yeah, Boulevard's one of the ones open, yeah. Yeah, they're one of the ones open. That's the thing. When I started looking around, I thought, you know, not as many open as I thought might be for Christmas Day. Um, and so I went ahead. They're doing a special Christmas menu there, which is really nice to see. But I wonder if in the next few weeks, Ian, do you think more restaurants are going to think, you know what, maybe we should open up too? Yeah, I think so. I think people are, you know, I mean, the industry is so entrepreneurial. Uh, the things they've done with food kits, uh, grocery kits, cocktail kits, this is all online, right? Um, yeah. Wine kits, wine tastings, um, you know, uh, turkey heat and go ready for Christmas. And so if you don't want to go to a restaurant, the other option is some really great innovation that's online. And I mean, everybody's really going for it here because it's been such, as you pointed out also, is that um, no Christmas parties, no events, nothing that could, could happen in a restaurant. So this is kind of it. We're, again, going to pivot and hopefully get to, you know, through the next three or four months, uh, for, you know, hopefully get these numbers under control. Yeah. And in the next three or four months, we're going to spring and we're going to we'll, we'll have we're going to lose a lot of restaurants in this. There's no question. They just can't. There's no way they can continue on when they they have a, a Christmas uh, period like we're in right now. Not their fault, obviously, but you know, I feel sorry for the restaurants. I feel sorry for the staff that aren't getting the hours. Yeah. It's, it's a tough time. We're not going to be here next year, so we're going to have to make the best of getting through it this year. Would you say that this last round of public health orders are the ones that kind of, because it was business, you know, it was pretty busy at restaurants before that. Would you say this last health order a couple of weeks ago is the one that changed things for a lot of restaurants? 100%. Uh, people are confused. They're, they're a little bit scared, a little bit confused. And, you know, so we're, you know, we're towing the Dr. Henry uh, communication, which is you go to a restaurant, you go with your immediate household. Yeah. But then if, you know, it, it, you know, you could, well, anyways, let's leave it at that. But, you know, if you can slice and dice that, you could go with your kid, you could go with your wife. I mean, you could actually go with other family members. They could actually go sit at another table and you could wave and not table hop. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons that we could go to restaurants 
We were actually having a chat with Dr. Emerson yesterday who works for Dr. Henry, and they recognize the mental health benefits of going out, but we just have to do it in a way that follows the protocols that Dr. Henry's asking us to do. And we saw some numbers improving yesterday, and we can be part of those improvements, and we'll get to this, you know, a better result faster. So that is so true. Um, we we did that. We decided last week that we're going to do this. So just my household, we went out for dinner. Um, and you know what? Shout out here to Tojo's on West Broadway Ooh. in Vancouver. Just a fantastic meal. But also I, t- I had a chat, you know, with him from a distance, of course. And I've known him for many, many years. And he was saying it's a struggle. And you're talking about somebody who is a world-renowned chef, right? A yep. Japanese chef. And they are also struggling through this. If it wasn't for... Uh, some of the supports, like the rent supports and the wage supports that federal government put in place, uh, we wouldn't have much of an industry left. Like it's, they're just hanging on and using all those levers um, to get through this. But you know, it is. I mean, it's really sad to think Tojo is is even having that conversation. Someone so successful for so many years in Vancouver, and he's probably looking at his bank account, going, "Boy, it's, it, there's not much left here." So, you know, for the people listening, going out buying gift certificates in advance. Ordering at home, I mean, and, not, and this is not a sales pitch because all this stuff is fun. It, you know, restaurants are fun. They're, they can be, you know, great for your mind, your socialization. So I guess I'm, the plea is don't give up on us. Um, we're there to serve. And, and I think the restaurants will do an amazing job uh, during the holiday season uh, this year. Oh, they certainly have. So I would yeah. say, like, for people to take a load off, order dinner out, right? Have it delivered to you or go and pick it up because it'll help the restaurant and you won't have to do all the cooking yourself. Well, and it's on trend because this time last year, it's hard to, to measure all the stats, but this time last year, um, you know, takeout was about 20% plus of a restaurant. This year is headed towards 50%. So you know wow. that someone, you know, every second person in your neighborhood is ordering food in and enjoying themselves and, uh, and enjoying the avails of some of the other innovations that are going on. So, yeah, absolutely for sure. All Jump right. on it, helping, you know, and that helps, you know, keep the restaurants open. It helps with the staff. It helps with the drivers that bring the food. It's a, it's a micro economy. It's so important that, um, that but, but at the other side, very enjoyable as well. It is. It can be. All right, Ian, thank you. Simi, we'll talk to you before Christmas, I'm sure. I'm sure we will. That's Ian Tossenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association, talking about the ways in which restaurants are still trying to hang in there. Uh, the big blow of coming a couple weeks ago with the new restrictions. But, you know, Ian just made a couple of great suggestions, right? Just do do more takeout. It's upwards of 50% now of most restaurants' business. Uh, think about it maybe over the holidays. Fancy dinner lots of them will do takeout. You can have that fancy dinner right at home or go out for dinner with your household uh, and do that as a kind of a special occasion thing over the holidays. Spend some time outside of the house. That's a good way to do that is to take your immediate household and go out, have a nice dinner somewhere, and you'll be helping a local restaurant as well. You know, parents quite often have to do a lot of battling on behalf of their kids. It's just something that goes with the territory, but nothing quite like what this local mom is going through right now because she's seeking treatment for her daughter who is in a very unique situation. So joining us now is Barbara Inslee. Her daughter is Makeda. Barbara, thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Simi. Tell me about Makeda. Uh, well, Makeda was uh, adopted from Ethiopia when she was six months old. Um, very healthy, beautiful baby, biggest smile that you'll ever see. 
Um, and, you know, soon after she arrived in Canada, it became obvious that she was um, picking up things a little bit slower uh, than some of the other kids her age. Um, so we had, you know, a lot of phys- physical therapy for her, occupational therapy, um, to try and get her to meet those milestones. And she did gradually meet them, but it was taking a lot longer. Uh, and then eventually, um, after many, many, uh, we did genetic testing. And then after uh, quite a bit of time had passed, uh, we got a diagnosis, a devastating diagnosis, that actually she had a um, uh, neurodegenerative disease, a, a fatal disease, um, and that it was going to, over time, slowly uh, take away the skills that she had gained, her, um, you know, her ability to talk and uh, her mobility and her cognitive abilities as well. Um, and that uh, definitive diagnosis came just a couple of years ago. Um, and since then, now I'm in the situation that I am now where I've um, connected with a whole bunch of parents uh, to try and, right. uh, and get a treatment done for her. You know, how rare is this? I was reading about this, but let everybody know, how rare is this condition? <laughs> uh, this condition is so rare that out of the entire world, there's maybe 150 kids who have it. And we've identified about eight in North America. So you know, it's probably one in a half billion, maybe one in a quarter billion. That's how long the odds are. Is there anything that can be done to help Makeda? Yes. So um, I uh, tapped into a family down in the States uh, when this whole journey started, and they've actually been working for about 10 years to get a gene therapy for the kids up and running and get a clinical trial going. Um, and that is the what I would say the cure. It's not even the treatment. It's probably the cure for these kids. Wow. Um, and that's using a lot of current technology that you're hearing about with the, um, uh, with the COVID virus and, and a few other things. Uh, so what has this been like, though, Barbara? Like, I can't even imagine first your child is sick and now you're battling something that is so incredibly rare like what's available to you or have you had to kind of find all the information yourself um, well, her doctors at Children's were fantastic. I mean, they were out there researching when she had the diagnosis, exactly the same as I was. But, you know, they connected to all th- the same things as well. They connected me with researchers in Finland and Germany uh, who were working on the disease. And, and then I found the parents down in the States and, and worked from there. Uh, but it's really been, uh, as a parent, as any parent with, with kids with rare diseases knows, it's really the, um, you know, the burden is on you to reach out and make things happen. Yeah, how do you do that, though? Is it, is it the help and the support of the other parents out there? Oh, we've had a phenomenal group. So we've, yeah, we're all connected. We're regularly connected because they're fundraising in their own countries as well. And of course, my my village here in Vancouver is massive. So I've had so many people step up. It's just been, it just brings me to tears because it's it's all the people in the adoption community, people in the Ethiopian community, because that's where Makeda is from. You know, my friends who stepped on the board uh, to help me form a registered charity to, um, you know, to cure this disease. Uh, fa- you know, family, it's uh, colleagues and former colleagues. It's just been amazing. So you're talking about curing this disease with that gene therapy but what is what does that take to get to that point um, well, a whole lot of, uh, you know, for the last 10 years, there's been a whole lot of work getting it to where it is now, and we're really down to the last year. So we've got preliminary FDA approval. Um, a lot of the safety testing has been done. Uh, so we're really getting to the point where we just have to raise this uh, this last U.S. $2 million. We do have money from other, you know, other foundations and other people have stepped up. Uh, and we're left raising about the last $2 million as parents um, just to close yeah. that gap. Uh, and then we hope to be able to start the clinical trial uh, at the end of 2021, beginning at 2022. I guess what's different here in this situation is, Barbara, you're not just talking about a treatment, you're talking about a cure. 
oh, it's, uh, you know, this, <laughs> this is the wave of the future. But for Makeda's disease, the thing that's funny is that her, her disease is actually so simple. So it's so rare, but it's so simple. So there's just one gene that's impacted. And what you do is you simply replace the gene. So you use an empty, um, you know, virus vector to put the gene into the child's spinal fluid where it spreads with, uh, throughout their body. And it will, uh, it will work on her. And it, right. it obviously, it's worked in other rare diseases, and it has the potential to cure a lot more. Right. So this story is really not just about Makeda or AGU kids in general. It's really about um, you know pushing gene therapies for these rare diseases out more generally. Now, Barbara, where can people find out more? Um, well, we have a lot of information up on the chair on the uh, website that we set up for the charity. Um, so that's Rare Trait Hope Society. Um, we've also started a GoFundMe. Uh, you can find it under Miracle for Makeda okay. on, the, on the GoFundMe page. And, you know, what I would ask, if people can contribute to save her life and, and other lives, then, I'm, you know, I'm so grateful. But um, I know it's a hard time for people, a lot of uncertainty. And if they're able to even help us spread the word to people who can right. contribute, I am so grateful for that as well. well. We'll see what happens. Barbara, let us know how Makeda does. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. That's Barbara Inslee talking about her daughter, Makeda, who could essentially have this very rare illness that she has, a degenerative condition, cured if they can finish raising money. Can you imagine? It's that close. It is that close to making that happen. And you can just check out their website online for more information.